Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Chelsea Ellen Brook was born the youngest of five children on January 28, 1992, to parents Matthew and Leanda Brock. At the age of 22, Chelsea lived in Monroe County, Michigan, where she worked as a hostess at Olga's Kitchen in the Mall of Monroe. She also had plans to attend Monroe Community College to earn a degree in culinary arts. Chelsea was a bit of a nerd, and I mean that in a good way. She enjoyed music, video games like the JRPG Final Fantasy VIII, and the television show Doctor Who. She also loved to read and bake goodies. On October 25, 2014, Michael Williams, known to the locals as Big Mike, hosted an annual Halloween bash at his mother's farm at the corner of Post and Williams Roads in Frenchtown Township. The party was generally very large, with anywhere from 600 to 1,000 people showing up every year. Chelsea had been working on her Halloween costume for weeks and was excited to dress up as Poison Ivy from the 1997 Batman and Robin movie. She wore a long red wig, red lipstick, a green leaf top, and black yoga pants. She arrived at the party with her friend Rebecca Brinson, carrying a bottle of wine labeled Poison. As the night was nearing an end, she received a call from an unknown number. The caller was an unknown man who was also in attendance at the party and offered her a ride home, which she accepted. I'm guessing she gave him her number sometime during the party. She was last seen leaving with the man around 3 a.m., and this would be the last time anyone would see her alive. When she didn't arrive home the next day, her family and friends began searching for her. Unable to find her, they called the police and reported her missing. That's when a friend told the police about the call Chelsea received, offering her a ride just before 3 a.m. Another friend told the police that she left the party with a man named Daniel Clay, but that's all anyone knew. An even larger search party was then organized, starting at the site of the party. Volunteers continued to expand their search, but unfortunately, they were unable to find Chelsea or any clues as to where she could be. Partygoers were interviewed, including the host, but they were unable to obtain any relevant information. Even after her family distributed hundreds of thousands of missing person flyers, they were still no closer to finding Chelsea. Finally, six months later, in early April 2015, the Poison Ivy costume she had been wearing, along with her other clothes, was discovered at an abandoned industrial site formerly called Specialty Petroleum. The location was on Peters Road near Van Horn Road in Flat Rock, about 10 miles away from the Halloween party. Then, on April 24, 2015, Chelsea's body was found by a construction crew in a shallow grave at a rural construction site near a set of railroad tracks in Ash Township. 
the medical examiner confirmed that Chelsea had died from blunt force trauma to the head and other fractures to her face, jaw, neck, and teeth. It's important to note that the examiner found no signs of Chelsea being choked to death. DNA evidence found on Chelsea's poison ivy costume would link back to Daniel Clay, the man she was seen leaving the party with. Authorities already had his DNA after he was arrested for an unrelated crime. On September 2, 2015, another part of her costume was located and contained even more DNA evidence. Police interviewed Clay, who said he met her at the party after consuming drugs and alcohol. He would then proceed to give detectives several different stories. At first, Clay said he saw her walking down the road from the party as he was leaving. He said he pulled up next to her and offered her a ride. She accepted, and he then pulled over to the side of the road where they had rough, consensual sex. Upon his arrest, Clay told the Monroe County Sheriff's Detective that he didn't mean to kill her. He claimed that Chelsea asked him to slap and choke her, which he did for 20 to 30 seconds, but ended up killing her in the process. He said that after she fell unconscious, he tried to revive her by performing CPR, but was unsuccessful. However, investigators were very skeptical of this alleged story because it would take way longer than 20 to 30 seconds to choke someone to death. Also, remember that the examiner never found any evidence that Chelsea was the victim of strangulation. Instead of taking Chelsea to a hospital, he claimed he freaked out and drove around for 30 to 45 minutes, scared and trying to figure out what to do. He said he ended up driving to some train tracks about 10 miles from the party's location, then carried her body from the vehicle into a wooded area until he became tired and hid it under some tree branches. On July 26, 2016, Daniel Clay was arrested for Chelsea's murder at his girlfriend's mobile home in the Frenchtown Villa Mobile Home Park. Clay's girlfriend, Kelly Richter, said that he confessed to the crime on a phone call the very next day. He even confessed via voicemail to his son's mother, Jessica Priddle. In 2017, he was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Chelsea's mother, Leanda, said that she had forgiven Clay and had given him a Bible, which he said he would keep. Clay had also sexually assaulted a woman in 2016 and received a sentence of 40 to 75 years for the crime. Thankfully, he is off the streets and will spend the rest of his life behind bars. Gretchen Harrington was born on June 13, 1967, one of four daughters to parents Ina and Harold Harrington. In 1975, eight-year-old Gretchen lived in Marple Township, Broomall, Pennsylvania, and was described as sweet and gentle. The Harringtons were somewhat strict with their children, not allowing them to watch TV or play outside on Sundays, but they were still a close-knit, happy family. On Friday, August 15, 1975, it was the last day of summer Bible camp, so Gretchen left home at about 9.20 a.m., headed for the Trinity Church in Marple. The agenda for the day was to have a morning exercise led by Trinity's Reverend David Zanstra, and then at 10.30 a.m., half the children, including Gretchen, would be transported to another Bible camp at the Reformed Presbyterian Church, where her father, Harold, served as the reverend. 
Gretchen's house and Trinity Chapel were both located on Lawrence Road, a heavily trafficked four-lane highway. To get to the church, Gretchen would normally walk two blocks up a steep hill and then cross to the opposite side of Lawrence Road. A neighbor recalled seeing Gretchen walking up the hill around 9.25 a.m., shortly after she left home. She typically walked with her sisters, but on this day, her sister had just returned home from the hospital, leaving Gretchen to walk alone. As she left the house, her father, Harold, watched her walk up Lawrence Road, and this would be the last time he ever saw his daughter alive. As 10.30 a.m. came and went, Harold became increasingly concerned that Gretchen had not arrived at the Reformed Church yet. Concerned that she wandered off or went home, he went to Lawrence Road but saw no sign of her. He then called Trinity Chapel and spoke with Reverend David's wife, Margaret. By 11.23 a.m., when Gretchen still had not arrived, Reverend David notified the police. Within a few hours, there were more than 300 volunteers searching for her. They searched the woods surrounding the grocery store and housing developments, but due to the two-feet-thick underbrush, it was slow going. By the end of the day, more than five square miles had been searched, but Gretchen was still nowhere to be found. Tracker dogs had followed her scent from her home to about halfway up the steep hill along Lawrence Road, where the trail abruptly ended. Investigators theorized that Gretchen may have gotten into a vehicle at that point. A witness then came forward and reported seeing Gretchen talking with the man in a green station wagon. Investigators quickly learned that someone close to the family also drove a green station wagon, Reverend David Zanstra. However, he denied seeing her on the day she disappeared, but one of his stops was along Lawrence Road. He said he was back at Trinity Chapel by 9.30 a.m., but wasn't aware of her disappearance until 11.05 a.m. when he met with Gretchen's father. However, his wife Margaret would say that when David returned to the church, he wasn't driving his green Rambler station wagon. Also, the parents of other children attending classes that day said that David had arrived 45 minutes late. Strangely, when David reported Gretchen missing, he was able to provide a detail of the exact clothes she was wearing that day, even though he claimed to have never seen her. Two months later, on October 14, 1975, a sailor from the Philadelphia Naval Yard stumbled across Gretchen's remains while jogging through Ridley Creek State Park in Delaware County. This location is about seven miles from the Harrington family home. Dental records confirmed her identity, and an autopsy determined she was beaten to death. Due to the state of her remains, the coroner was unable to determine if Gretchen had been sexually assaulted but investigators believed it was likely because her killer had undressed her and laid her clothing in a neat pile next to her body and draped her underwear over a tree branch. In the following weeks, the police spoke with several people to piece together what had happened to Gretchen. They interviewed Reverend David on August 19th and again on October 30th. He denied seeing Gretchen that day and told them he picked up some children and drove them to the church. Unfortunately, her murder would go unsolved for the next 48 years. Interestingly, Joanna Falcone Sullivan wrote a book titled Marple's Gretchen Harrington Tragedy and interviewed Reverend David and his wife Margaret. While Margaret remembered a lot of details about the day, David was a little more forgetful. In January 2023, a woman told investigators, 
that she was friends with Reverend David's daughters and would often play at the Zanstra home and stay overnight. The woman told the police that during two sleepovers, she was awakened by David touching her groin area. When she told David's daughter about what happened, she said he does that sometimes. The victim also recalled a child in her class by the name of Holly, who was almost kidnapped twice. The woman showed investigators her diary from 1975. In one entry, dated September 15, 1975, she wrote, Guess what? A man tried to kidnap Holly twice. It's a secret, so I can't tell anyone, but I think he might be the one who kidnapped Gretchen. I think it was Mr. Z, referring to Mr. David Zanstra. She told her parents about what happened, and not long after, David moved with his family outside of Dallas to Plano, Texas. On July 17, 2023, investigators traveled to Marietta, Georgia to interview David again. He initially denied his involvement in Gretchen's murder, but David, now 83, finally confessed to the murderer after the officer told him about the sexual assault claims. He then told the story of what happened that day. He said he offered Gretchen a ride in his green AMC Rambler station wagon. After she got in, he took her to a nearby wooded area, parked the car, and asked her to remove her clothes. When she refused, he beat her to death before dumping her remains in an area of Ridley Creek State Park and covering her body with some sticks. Now that the truth is finally out, it's crazy to think that David was the pastor for Gretchen's funeral service. David Zanstra was then arrested and charged with first, second, and third-degree murder, criminal homicide, kidnapping of a minor, and possession of an instrument of crime. David is currently awaiting extradition back to Delaware County, Pennsylvania, to await trial. Sanda Jandia was born on April 9, 1998, to a refugee from Senegal and raised in Edegum, Belgium. At the age of 20, Sanda was still living in Belgium and was an engineering student at the Catholic University of Leuven, now known as KU Leuven. On December 5, 2018, Sanda had traveled to Vorselaar, Belgium, to stay in a cabin in the woods as part of his fraternity's hazing ritual. Once there, Sanda and two other fraternity pledges were forced to drink large amounts of alcohol before standing outside half-naked in a pool of freezing water. They were then made to consume a live goldfish before being forced to throw it back up by drinking dangerous amounts of fish oil. The hazing was a ritual of the Ruzagom fraternity. Sadly, after hours in the freezing pool, Sanda went into cardiac arrest and collapsed. Fraternity members then drove him 12 miles to a local hospital in Mali. At 9.49 p.m., Sanda was transferred to the University Hospital of Antwerp, where hospital staff alerted the police. During all of this, the fraternity members began deleting text messages and video recordings from their phones and cleaned the cabin from top to bottom in order to cover up what had happened. By the time the police arrived at the cabin at 3.53 a.m., on December 6, the scene had already been cleaned up. On December 7, Sanda tragically died of multiple organ failure, and the coroner attributed his death to salt toxicity due to drinking the fish oil. The amount of salt in his body was comparable to a person who drank four liters of seawater, and this caused acute swelling of the brain. 
Sando's father hired an attorney who sought out information on the events of the night, but the other students refused to talk. The university initially suspended the students, but they were later permitted to resume their studies while the school decided the disciplinary action to take. In 2021, almost three years after Sanda's death, the school finally reached a decision, and the seven students who were still at the school were expelled and barred from re-enrolling. Also, the Ruzagam fraternity was disbanded. On May 26, 2023, the court found all 18 students who were involved in the hazing guilty of involuntary manslaughter and degrading treatment, but they were acquitted of culpable neglect and administering a harmful substance causing death or illness. They were then sentenced to perform 200 to 300 hours of community service and pay fines of over $400. The students, who have never been named fully in public, were also forced to pay $16,000 to Sanda's father, $8,500 to his brother, and $6,400 to his stepmother. Sanda's mother only requested damages of one euro, which the court approved. It's since been noted that some of the fraternity members were the sons of judges and politicians, which some felt led to their sentences being too lenient. What do you think? Let me know in the comments below. Linda Tashari was born on July 14, 1958. In 1978, at the age of 19, Linda was a bartending student living in a small cottage on her family's property in the 100 block of Pooley Place in Buffalo, New York. Linda was described as open-minded, enjoyed music and reading, and was always happy to help with her many siblings. On February 9, 1978, Linda's mother thought it was strange that she hadn't heard from her and asked Linda's brother, 18-year-old Howard Tachari, to go check on her. When he entered the cottage, he found Linda's body face down in the living room. She had been stabbed to death in what investigators described as severe overkill. Blood was found in several rooms, leading police to suspect her killer had been injured during the vicious attack. There were even traces of blood on a Grand Funk Railroad vinyl record cover, making investigators believe the murderer paused to browse through Linda's record collection before fleeing the scene. Since it had snowed heavily just before the murder, there was a trail of blood in the snow leading from the cottage and away from the property. Unfortunately, with the lack of DNA technology, the case would go unsolved for the next 44 years. Over the years, the DNA had been run through the system multiple times but never returned any matches. However, in 2019, detectives decided to try again, and this time they got a hit from an arrest in Oregon in 2008. It was a match to 63-year-old John M. Sauberon, who had lived about a mile from Linda's cottage back in 1978. He was described as a drifter who had lived in several other states, including New York, Oregon, Florida, and Georgia, and had a record for mostly petty crimes. In 2020, Sabaron was arrested and charged with Linda's murder. At trial, his attorneys questioned the possibility that the crime scene had been contaminated. However, the jury didn't buy it and found Sabaron guilty of second-degree murder. He was ultimately sentenced to 25 years to life. Anna 
Evelyn Marie Fisher Bamforth was born in British Columbia, Canada on March 23, 1947. At the age of 32, Evelyn was a registered psychiatric nurse living with her husband, John Bamford, and he described her as the calmest person you could ever meet. In 1980, the couple was living in Miramar, Florida at the Haven Lake Estates in the Chilliwack community. At nearly midnight on January 22nd, a friend of Evelyn staying with the couple came home but had forgotten her key. So she knocked on the door of the mobile home thinking Evelyn would open the door, but she never did. Knowing that Evelyn should be in there, she called the police who came and entered the home. Later on, when John arrived home from work, he found police tape on his front door and officers all over the place. He also found a police sticker on the door saying, do not enter, but he disregarded the message. Upon entering, he was shocked to find the furniture strewn about the home. As he entered the bedroom, he saw his wife, who had been sexually assaulted and beaten to death. Investigators theorized that the suspect most likely entered the trailer through a window and attacked her while she slept. Investigators would quickly find a person of interest by the name of Ronald Eugene Richards. Not only did he live just 12 homes away from Evelyn, but he was also out on parole for murdering his former girlfriend in Ohio in 1975. He was also arrested three months after Evelyn's murder for a separate crime involving sexual assault and attempted murder. They even determined that Richard's M.O. was extremely similar to that of Evelyn's homicide, but unfortunately, they lacked enough evidence to arrest him. This would leave her case unsolved for the next 40 years. However, all that would change in 2022 when DNA linked him to the crime. 75-year-old Richards is currently serving the remainder of his sentence in Ohio for the murder of his girlfriend in 1975, but will be extradited back to Broward County, Florida to stand trial for Evelyn's murder. Her husband, John, spent nearly 43 years mourning the loss of his wife and later moved to the UK. He was happy with the news of the indictment and went on to describe how the couple met. He said they began dating in 1969, and he was offered a job at a resort in the Grand Cayman Islands as a beverage manager in 1970, a job he couldn't pass up. So, she quit her job after six months and followed him, but after about a year, she got what he called island happy and needed to get away. She went to Miami, and three days later, he followed her. That's when they settled at Haven Lake Estates in a new mobile home park in the Miramar area. Sadly, he blamed himself because he was not home, and he felt if he had been, the murder would have never happened. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.